and I and I would go further and say these bastards have destroyed my city. <laughs> they have destroyed my they city. They are not finished. They and they're not finished. I mean, they won't finish until the Isle of Dogs has sunk into the bloody Thames, as far as I can see. And what used to be, you know, fantastic vistas, beautiful vistas across London, have just been wrecked, as far as I can see, by this building at height. There's a reason why you can't build tower blocks in the city of London. There's a reason why. You can't, because that's where their class lives. That's where their class yeah. works. They don't want their bloody views spoiled, but they're quite happy to wreck the rest of the, the uh, skylines. Well, in, just... in, in, in Jack's self's defense, none of this is ever going to be built. <laughs> well, just as well. <laughs> Did he but, actually win an award for that? No, no, no this is not. Oh, right. This is the non-award winner. Right, this is okay. just a grift. Yeah. But, he, but he did, uh, with, with a few others, produce the uh, British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. Of 2016. Of 2016. Organized by the other guy. Right. So this is a whole international cabal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of evil builders presenting a social your work on the housing charter and what kind of concrete policies you think are necessary i guess this is in a in a british context sure um and indeed we make a number of very specific demands the first of which um or among the first of which is to abolish the right to buy in england scotland and wales have already done so it's kind of striking that it hasn't been abolished in england well, it's not because we have a Tory government in England and we've had a Tory government in England since, um, you know, f well, for the last 11 years. And it's but within... years before that. Well, it's within the last 11 years that Scotland and Wales have abolished it, um, principally uh, because housing is a devolved matter. So, so they've taken the opportunity to do so because you have, uh, you know, even the SNP is more radical than the Tories. Uh, and also they recognised just how much damage was actually being done and how big a crisis there was of supply because it costs a fortune to accommodate homeless households and at the moment we've got something like 300,000 homeless families or homeless households in temporary accommodation in this country and a huge number more who are living in private rented accommodation in insecure tenancies and who can be got out at you know a few months notice uh, <laughs> at the whim of the landlord and if the landlords are starting as they are now to, to try and dispose of their accommodation or dispose of properties, which I think if there is a slump in prices, we will see happening because if they can't let the properties or people can't afford to rent there the is, properties... There is a slump in prices already. There, it's starting. The slump is starting, but government's been quite quiet about it. But we've seen prices reducing in London um, quite markedly. I mean, prices in my, my house, my flats in my little house, when it's tenant goes out and the next comes in I, I i ask how much are you paying for that now it's less than the previous one my landlady the small and uh because prices people, are going down yeah and and there's a reason for that but i mean the one thing that that's but happened gonna, but it, it's likely that it's going to be succeeded by a, an, in, an inflationary crisis because what you have in yeah. a situation like this is small property owners want to sell but big property owners start buying for cheap and then they artificially raise prices because they don't necessarily need to actually rent that to anyone who can afford it. They just they're just inflating the artificial value of the of of a of a stock. 
Well, the majority of private landlords in this country are very are small landlords. The majority of them um, are those that have picked up two or three ex right to buy properties and are renting them out. They they are small. There are a small number of significant players in the field. Some of them are good. The majority of them probably not so much. Um, so, yeah, um, I mean, it's just it, it's just ridiculous that you know, the accommodation that we have in this country is a commodity. It's not meeting social need anymore. And people are living in abject squalor in some cases. I mean, the sorts of problems that you that you alluded to in terms of some of the difficulties with the tower blocks, uh, council tower blocks, and indeed on the Brutalist stuff, um, were, were issues in the majority of cases that could be resolved through retrofitting, uh, through advice. I mean, it's like uh, all of those estates were built to Parker Morris standards, so they're all huge uh, flats, but, you know, with virtually no electrical points in, you know, you might have one double socket outlet in an enormous um, living room or a couple of double sockets. You know, you'd have had one or two socket outlets in a kitchen, for instance. So those sorts of things actually needed to be upgraded and improved. Um, you know, and and if you've got no outdoor space to dry your washing, uh, and these days, of course, it is now de rigueur for local authorities less so but certainly housing associations to ban people from drying their washing on the balconies you know on uh, you, you can't do it looks i mean i can remember one housing manager saying we've got to stop it it looks like beirut out there and i'm like well but then you'll start complaining when they've got black mold in the living rooms because they're dry, drying their washing on the radiators they've got to do one or the other you know or they're running a, a condensing um tumble dryer with no with no outlet those that that's the sort of thing that causes condensation in people's homes and also saying it looks like Beirut is kind of racist well <laughs> i mean it goes without saying doesn't it <laughs> abolishing the right to buy in england we went we got tangential there didn't we um abolishing the sale of, of public land just stop it right. you know and also um starting to look at uh bringing properties back into public ownership so whether where we've got absentee landlords uh where we've got um generally poor management where we've got uh people living in squalor so on and so forth actually looking at compulsory purchase of those properties taking them back again getting empty properties back into use retrofitting i mean there's just a huge huge swathe of of policies that could be looked at i mean not specifically within the charter i think we don't really address it so much but the question of climate change for instance and this thing oh we're going to abolish gas and everybody's got to move to ground source heat pumps or air source air source heat pumps which is fine if you've got a big garden that can take the um the the the, the ground source pump or you've got a bloody great plant room in which you can put your air source heat pump machinery because if it's not the right size and if it's not the right power, then it won't work. It won't heat the homes up. You know, getting, I mean, the whole Insulate Britain thing, I mean, we might have some issues around some of their tactics, although I, you've got to admire people who will actually put their bodies on the line for, for the cause, which is what they've been doing. But... Um, you know, raising those issues about improving the thermal efficiency of existing homes rather than uh, knocking them down and then putting up, 
you know, properties that are really not going to be that much better. They, you know, there's an enormous amount to look at. Uh, in terms of homelessness, um, abolish the notion of intentional homelessness and abolish the notions of, of priority need. If somebody is homeless... Yeah, I think you should explain that because it's insanely sure. preposterous and people don't know about it. Sure. Well, OK, intentional homelessness. Well, let's start off with priority need. In order to qualify for assistance with housing, you have to meet... Um, the definition of priority need. The obvious is um, families with children or pregnant women uh, and then people with disabilities or who might be homeless as a result, uh, who might be vulnerable because of their age uh, or disability uh, or, you know, some other reason. Or if they become homeless in an emergency, like fire or flood, those sorts of things. They're, then the local authority has got a duty to assist um, up until... Fairly recently, that duty involved um, the offer of uh, social housing, uh, a social housing tenancy, unless the tenant volunteered to take a private sector tenancy, usually through a rent deposit scheme. Uh, before the, I mean, in the 1996 Act, it was only a social housing tenancy. Could you discharge the homeless duty? If you're not in priority need, which is generally single people, uh, even if you're sleeping rough uh, and you're deemed not to be in priority need, then the only thing you're entitled to is advice and assistance. Uh, you're, and that doesn't necessarily extend to assistance with accommodation. Uh, the Act that was passed in 2018 uh, was sufficiently uh, vague in certain sections that convinced me that actually the expectation is that even with non-priority homeless cases, now there is an expectation that local authorities will at least provide temporary accommodation for a period of time and that they will not allow people or will not expect people to continue to sleep on the streets if, if that's the only option that's available to them. But a lot of local authorities will avoid doing that because of the cost. Under COVID, of course, they were successful in getting the vast majority of rough sleepers off the street and into B&Bs and hotels, that sort of thing. So abolishing the concept of priority need and, so, and accepting that if you are homeless, if you do not have anywhere to live or the only place that you have to live is insanitary, overcrowded, dangerous, you know, unsuitable, then you need assistance and you should be entitled to that assistance and that is assistance with accommodation of some kind or another suitable accommodation. So abolishing the concept of priority need. The other is um, intentional homelessness, which is that even if you're in priority need, if you're deemed to be responsible for your own homelessness, for instance, rent arrears or antisocial behaviour, then the duty only, only extends to providing short-term temporary accommodation while you're sorted out with something in the private sector or the kids are taken away or whatever decision is taken. And there were um, uh, schemes under the Blair government uh, and what was called the Supporting People Programme, which was the housing support service, uh, housing support funding, which carried a, a significant amount of funding and has now almost disappeared uh, to provide intensive housing support for for households that were chaotic, you know, and 
because a significant number of those priority need homeless households were households where addiction was a problem, where uh, mental health was a problem, uh, where poverty was a problem, uh, where kids getting involved in um, crime and antisocial behaviour, you know, and more general antisocial behaviour. All significant issues, all things that make the rest of life for the rest of the neighbourhood horrendous, uh, but actually need to be need to be dealt with and addressed because the alternative is what that people with children just move from, you know, slum to slum to to dossing on nanny's sofa until nanny's had enough and kicks them out. Those sorts of scenarios. You've actually got to be thinking: Why is it that people become lumpen? What is it that makes people um, uh, become antisocial? What is it that makes people become uh, addicts, gambling, or alcohol or whatever that they can't actually manage to pay their rent you know drug addicts what is it that is pushing kids young kids into gang culture on estates uh, and resulting in those children being put at risk getting you know stabbing epidemics and so on I mean Greenwich has got more young people I think the highest number Greenwich and Newham the highest number of young people dying through stabbings and all of that Catford's pretty high up high up too sorry Catford's pretty high up sure and all of that is linked to your county lines to your to your criminal behavior your drug drug behavior what is it that is actually causing that to happen and how do we what responsibility should the state take for solving that problem as opposed to just chucking them away and you know saying right no we're going to evict you your behavior is terrible go and live in this one bedroom flat somewhere and you know upset the rest of your neighbors indefinitely until that private landlord's had enough and then you know you just you what you're creating is a generation of an underclass in this country um that is completely disengaged from society completely alienated uh, and with no answers no real answers from from society or the state in the noughties under Blair and Brown, we did actually have a programme and it was proven to be successful. There were there were some pilot projects. I think there was one up in um, Dundee, I think it was, where you just had schemes set up where if you had those kind of uh, problems, they were almost like sin bin blocks and I hate to say it, but it was intensive support going in to actually right. turn families around and turn that behaviour around and get people living in ways that they could... But even then, even then, uh, it was these are programs that are. I mean, it's good that they're at least trying to address it. But they're addressing a symptom that which deep causes come Absolutely. from the Thatcher counter revolution that the Blair government Absolutely. continued. When I lived in when I lived on council housing, you know, the community policed itself. If you had families that caused problems it was addressed by the community and those problems stopped or indeed those people moved you know it was like that that was you know we we dealt we wouldn't tolerate that likewise if you had families who were struggling and we had the sit I can remember we had the single mum with the three kids a couple of floors below us and the whole block used to rally around and help they'd help with babysitting they'd help you know they'd make sure the kids were fed they looked out for the kids made sure that she was okay and so on and so forth that's that's what we do that's what the working class does when we're living in a community when you're actually when the community that you're in and by the way only the working class has sure. communities sure the middle class doesn't have community <laughs> I think that's probably a sweeping statement, Ricardo. I think there are members of the middle class well, they have, that might they have, disagree. They have families, and they mm. might be extended families. 
they but don't have communities in the in, in this sense no I'm, i don't know about that actually i think it depends on where you are nah. but uh <clears throat> even even if like even a, a a gated community isn't a community in the sense of what lorraine is describing or or what or even what i have only really experienced since moving to london and becoming working class like I, when i was middle class i never had a community <laughs> in portugal now that i'm a working class immigrant it, like, it, it was kind of organic and automatic that I became part of a community. No, I, I, I think I know. I, I, I'm not sure that I necessarily <laughs> agree with. And, and the reason I'm thinking, I'm just thinking about things like parish, you know, town par parish councils, town councils, um, you know, communities down streets, neighbourhood, you know, neighbourhood watch, if you like, are all evidence or I indications of some sort of a communal uh, thing. But your community is your neighbours basically so you know and you may or may not know all of them and it depends to a large degree on where you live uh i think in uh i, th I think one of Britain. the i mean one of the interesting things uh about the community life you're describing is that it's existing in council housing it's existing on estates basically it's it's existing within modern architecture within modern movement architecture mm. right uh and the, the narrative around community, especially around working class community, is that modern architecture destroyed it. Mm. That basically in, in the old uh, slum, there was community. And in, then, the, in the olden feudal days. Well, and of course, it's just rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I mean, up until, and I come back to it, 1979, over 40% of the population in Britain lived in council housing. And that meant on all of those estates, you had people who were trade unionists, people who were politically active, uh, people who were working, people who weren't working, people who were retired, lots of children, you know, but all, all different ages. You had what was a mixed sustainable community to, to take that, to go back to that right. cliche. Yeah, um, and in your personal life, like what... what your personal experience, what was the like strongest best community, working class community that you experienced uh, in, during your life? Was it when you didn't have a, a bathroom in your house or was it when you had a proper flat in a working class, in a, in a, in a public uh, estate? Well, I, I, um, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky, I'm fortunate. I mean, you know, and I was like a toddler when we were living in, um, in when we were living in Guinness buildings. But um, in terms of the sense of, I mean, I, you know, just going back to council estates, you know, my aunt was like the secretary of the Tenants Association and it, they were active tenants. So, and this is how the working class used to organise themselves in communities. They got together, they made demands, you know, if there were things that they needed or that they wanted, they would campaign for them, whether it was a level crossing or whether it was, um, you know, a lollipop man or lollipop woman to help the kids across the road or a kid's playground or, you know, improve landscape. A crossing guard for A, a crossing for guard, American yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lollipop lady. That's what we had. Um, you know, and kids love them. But... You know, you, you would have that or demands for things like improvements to the tenants hall or to get a tenants hall. Those sorts of things, the working class organised themselves within right. the areas that they lived and they made those demands and they were politically connected. They were politically connected to the local council and the councils would listen because they knew that they could end up in difficulties if they didn't actually yeah. respond to so the, the community is also a product of the struggle. 
of the organization sure. and the struggle. Like communities, sure. housing communities also construct themselves historically in the struggle for better housing conditions. Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's the, it's one of the major consciousness raising activities, isn't it? You know, and and generally, of course, led by women, those sorts of campaigns. Yeah. It's the women who would be the secretaries of the tenants associations who would do all the bloody donkey work. You'd usually have a bloke who was the chair or frequently have a bloke <laughs> who was the chair. <laughs> but, the, but the ones who did most of the actual work and going out and delivering the leaflets and all the rest of it, you could expect that to be the women who were active and involved in their areas you know and they'd they'd run the lunch clubs for the pensioners they'd run you know the 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 um, play groups for the kids and stuff all stuff that was actually bringing people together and very often bringing women together and very often women who might have been isolated because they were widowed or they were single single mums or that the 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 husbands were out working um all day you know all day and all night or on the lorries or whatever mm. you know it's um Halcyon days, really. Halcyon days. <laughs> and destroyed. I mean, just coaching horses driven through. But, you know, we still get organised on our estates. People still do want to do stuff. Um, and uh, and sometimes people do. Sometimes. And communities now, working class communities, depend on their estates. Mm. And in many in many ways express themselves by in the struggle to keep them as they are as polit there's a political and economic drive to destroy the estates and therefore destroy the community. Well, one, one, I mean, and this is one of the major issues, really, you know, um, I mean, if I look at the ferrier, which is which is the one closest to home to me, although, I, I mean, you know, the Haygate, I knew well, I worked on the Aylesbury uh, and, and Robin Hood Gardens as well. I worked in Tower Hamlets. Uh, when the process of decanting starts, because there are always lots of people who do want to get off those estates, they have some sort of fantasy about moving into the house with the garden or moving into the nice new flat or whatever. And because those estates had actually become quite oppressive uh, as a result of both the right to buy right. and also, you know, the the, the transfer from... Um, Gen meeting general housing need to meeting extreme housing need. You know, what, what you saw actually was that gradual erosion of the sense of community. But I looked, I mean, you look at Robin Hood Gardens and you look, for instance, and you look at how that community functioned. Um, and I suspect there are a lot of people who are really quite sad to have seen the back of that, particularly as that... Oh, this, this, this is just factual data, it's not a matter of suspicion like the yeah uh how do you say it? it's not inquiries it's like surveys yeah surveys asking people what sure. they think they didn't want to move no no the narrative and that everyone hates living it it's completely i know and an awful fictional. lot of people would would not move i mean you know it got to the stage really by the by the end of the decant that um people were effectively being threatened with legal action to get them moved and and getting them uh, into different accommodation so yeah people didn't want to on the ferrier estate i mean my, my friend she says it was the best time she ever had living on that estate um, and by the time she she was living on there of course you know things had already progressed significantly with high levels of antisocial behavior high levels of crime and yet still you know that sense of community and that sense of pride in place as well and pr pride in your neighborhood um, and she feels the same way that I do about the Kidbrook village now. It's just looking at, you know, these sort of tower blocks that have gone up, which don't, none of them match. They're, it's just, 
you know, they just look like they've just been plonked in the middle of the place and with no real thought given to, and I know there's thought given because I've read the planning minutes, but it's like, you know, what planet are some of these people on to sit there and, and agree to create an area that looks the way that that looks and it just feels incongruous. I mean, when you walk, you know, when you're driving through it, just to see all these enormous tower blocks and, you know, lovely landscaping and a few nice yeah, shops. But yeah. This is, I mean, this is something we've talked about before that the level of planning going into the flats themselves and the way the units are arranged, the way the scheme is developed, like often flats, you know, will just look directly onto each other uh, or like as with, this building, you don't have a, a through breeze, you mm. don't have windows on both sides, and it's a deep flat, so it gets dark uh, yeah. almost immediately yeah. when the sun passes a certain angle, um, and it's looking directly onto the trains rather than yeah. being like oriented in some way. But directly. but this is a permitted development. This was built as an office block. This was never built as yeah. accommodation, and that's the other area where we're actually starting to see a massive growth in in um, new units of accommodation is the conversion of office blocks which in some cases can work perfectly well and fine um, but i think what it indicates and particularly with the growth of technology and considering how long most of these blocks is are up which is post internet um mm -hmm. was the complete lack of foresight in granting planning permission for this number of like you know, light industrial units or, or office blocks. It's like, well, where is the actual demand for that? And what do we actually need? And what we actually need is affordable homes. Yeah. And if the only homes that are being built are unaffordable, and then the only but things... The point that, of those homes is not to be lived in. It's to, it's again... Speculation. It's to, yeah, it's, Property it's, speculation. it's to increase the value of some stock... Um, what was the word you use? Uh, some hedge fund, some, yeah. some portfolio. Some por some yeah. Portfolio was the word I was looking yeah. for. Yeah. Stock portfolio. Absolutely. And they don't need to, like, they, they, they need to value the stocks. So if they can't sell it for a higher price, it doesn't matter. Mm. As long as you keep the faith that it might be sold eventually in the future. Like, you, you just need to keep the price, the value of the property go keep going up mm. regardless of whether you're actually getting any real economy income from renting it or well the, the, i mean speculation is that property speculation is is endemic in this country and it has been for decades you know but local authorities have the power have the legal power to sort it out which is to say occupy the property or we'll or we'll cpo it and you go through the compulsory purchase and if you go through a compulsory purchase process you can actually pick stuff up relatively cheaply by taking off you know standard legal fees for every single stage of the cpo process that you go through um, works very well for abandoned properties and for properties where the owners can't be traced, where the owners can be traced and you say, you know, well, we'll pay you what we think the property is worth. We will give you a valuation of the property. Um, and then we'll deduct £100,000 because that's what it's going to cost us to go through the CPO process. Then that will encourage people, hopefully, to let them. <laughs> Local, if if you bring back, if you bring, but they back, can't let them. If they have to lower the prices to let them, then the yeah. value of the stock portfolio will plummet, exactly. and then they're going to go broke because they, all they have is the faith for future profit. Sure, which and is then the entire financial system collapses. Which is the principal reason why the Labour government didn't reintroduce rent controls. Of course, you know, because actually, if you do that, then the whole model, the whole model of the British economy 
which is underpinned by property speculation and by... Not just the British economy, the Western economies in general. Well, for sure, but to, talking right. about what's going on here. you If you do that, if you reintroduce... Because most of Europe has rent controls in the private... You do have it. Most of your private landlords in Europe are big institutional landlords who look at long-term returns for things like pension funds and all the rest of it. The majority of private landlords in this country are individuals and small property portfolio holders, and that's the difference. That's the difference. There is no institutional financial uh, investment in private sector renting in this country, or very little. So, you know, that's the difficulty. But you bring, I'll tell you what would happen. If you reintroduce rent controls tomorrow, you would have a massive number of properties being put back onto the market. You would be seeing a reduction in the in the sale price of, of properties. Uh, and you would see, I think, um, an exodus of private individuals from the private rented sector. The sector here has is a direct result of the right to buy. Margaret Thatcher created the rentier class in this country, the current rentier class in this country. She is responsible for it, and her government is responsible for it. And the posterior governments were not. Yeah, and they didn't address it. I mean, what what John Press, what Labour did under Blair, um, was he capped the discounts on the right to buy. So he capped them at sixteen thousand pounds. He um, advertised that like they gave a year to bring that reduction in and in that year we had the last major spike before Cameron was elected in the right to buy uh, and then after that it flatlined there were virtually no properties sold once that discount effectively had no value or next to no value Cameron gets elected within two years he's increased the maximum discount to £112,000 in London uh, and up to I think 50 or 75% discount depending you know with a cash cash limit elsewhere uh, in the country and the right to buy went through the roof again and we've lost I don't know another uh, probably another 100,000 homes as a direct result of that policy decision. So, and we're still, we're continuing to lose them because it's free money. It's public subsidy for home ownership. You don't get public subsidy for social housing anymore. Right. You know, it's just very, very difficult to get the, get the funds together for that. And where you've got the potential, for instance, right to buy receipts, councils are restricted to spending that money within three years, or they've got to pay it all back to the government against a fictitious housing debt that goes back to money that was originally lent by the Public Works Loans Board to build council homes. Some of them going back to the 1930s, I kid you not. Well, thanks so much for for going through yep. uh, the contemporary situation, telling us about your experiences and ways of getting active. Um, we plan to uh, sort of finish with a, a more lighthearted uh, episode, a more lighthearted uh, segment um, sort of in line with some of our other our other segments, um, and show you some uh, recent architectural projects, some high high level, award winning, much celebrated internationally internationally regarded, radical politically engaged architectural projects. The the best that architectural academia and architectural culture has to offer, and just see what what you think of them. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Uh, these are uh, the stuff that people think about in the architectural discipline, at least in the UK, sure. of like socially engaged architecture that is concerned about these issues. 
Um, the first one we're showing you is by uh, a Chilean um, architect, uh, who everyone here thinks it's he's like a kind of a socially committed left winger. Uh, although in Chile, everyone else is like a, on a kind of conservative ultra-Catholic right. <laughs> uh, architect. Um, but he uh, won the Pritzker Prize, which is basically the Nobel Prize of Architecture in 2016, mm -hmm. on the basis of this kind of uh, uh, project. Uh, what we're showing you here is, uh, this, this is Alejandro Aravena. Uh, he's, um, uh, this is a project for basically sort of, ambiguously social housing, but in fact functions through, uh, um, like how, how you do describe the business model, because it, all of these projects are kind of, have carry embedded within them, uh, the architect coming up with a business model to make it possible. Sure. I mean, uh, uh, looking at these, I, I mean, there are two things that spring to mind. Firstly, um, Pete Seeger's song, Little Boxes, uh, and looking at that, I don't know. Are you familiar with that song? No. Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes, little boxes, little boxes, all the same. There's a green one and a pink one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same. There is nothing that I can see in that that um, gives any potential for the people living in them to personalise them. Uh, or oh, to, but there is. Uh, you have oh, no idea. And that's oh, the problem. Are there? <laughs> but what I'm also seeing is tiny windows. Um, they look very small. Uh, and uh, I'm not entirely clear who these are targeted at. There is... Uh, I mean, within the homelessness industry, if you like, in local government, we have been searching for a solution to the problem of temporary accommodation because, I mean, in London, temporary accommodation uh, renting from the private sector is costing close to £200 million a year to the 33 London boroughs. So uh, we certainly, up until the point I've retired, we were looking at solutions that would have been, um, you know, modular, very easy to slot into place, making meanwhile use of empty land prior to development uh, and providing uh, temporary accommodation. They were not being built to the same sort of standards as you would expect permanent accommodation to be built to, but they were functional, much better than bed and breakfast, and a lot cheaper than renting ex-council properties from private landlords. Um, but they were functional and they served a particular purpose. And there was a very good um, block, actually, opposite, very close to where you're living, um, opposite um, uh, what was Ladywell Baths, uh, which was yeah. uh, temporary accommodation and actually built with um, uh, industrial units underneath, so commercial units right. underneath as well, but were capable of being dismantled and basically moved anywhere. So in theory, the next, when that area was due to be redeveloped, you could then basically pick the block up and move it. And they were great. I mean, they were huge flats. Uh, they had the, the, you know, the ability to actually move the walls internally to create more rooms or bigger rooms and served a really good purpose and with good quality. But I look at this and um, I guess what I would say to the architect is, would you live there? Because I sure as hell wouldn't. Well, let's we'll tell you a bit more about the, the specificity of the project because I don't think... I don't think it won any awards 
for design in and of itself. Mm. <laughs> Certainly. So the, the project was to house a hundred families um, in the same area that they'd basically been illegally squatting for, for, for 30 years. Sure. And, but the, they had to do it with the amount of funds that were available in, in Chile under whatever legislation they had, which was very mm-hmm. poor. Um, they wanted to do it without moving them off-site. So even though that land was relatively expensive for social housing, they wanted to do it there anyway. Mm-hmm. And they basically decided, I mean, it seemed like they could take a traditional approach and just house fewer people with the with the subsidy. But what they decided to do was actually only build half the house for each family. Right. With the assumption that over time, that family will be able to somehow get the funds to complete the house. Through self-building. Through self-building and through self-funding or something. And they write about it here basically as a financial asset. It says... This is, this is on our Arc Daily site. What is our point? We think that social housing should be seen as an investment and not as an expense. So we had to make that the, make that the initial subsidy can add value over time. All of us, when buying a house, expect it to increase its value. But social housing, in an unacceptable proportion, is more similar to buy a car than to buy a house. Every day, so. its value decreases. So they're thinking about the social housing as a transitional model into a private investment. But it's also drivel. I mean, it's absolute <laughs> drivel. <laughs> I mean, first of all, social housing, of course, is a bloody investment because the alternative is what? Homelessness, squatting, squalor. Those, those are the alternatives for the majority of the population who cannot afford a private sector solution. And also, you know... Why is it that working class people who need supported or social housing, why is it they're not entitled to have a home? Why is it they're not entitled to look at their property, the place where they're living, as their home, as opposed to a place to stay that they might have to move on from but, at some but, point but in Lorraine, the future? They shouldn't be looking at it as a home. They shouldn't look at it as use value. They need to look at it as Trivia. an investment, as exchange value, as... Which is exactly the problem with housing under capitalism now is that it is used as a commodity. It's not a commodity. It is a social need. It fulfills a social function. It is socially useful production building a social What is really interesting about this is that uh, if you you read this uh, and compare it to the right to buy policy, it's actually fairly similar in the sense that the point of this is to transition from a public housing model of where there is public spending uh, to guarantee housing, uh, which functions as an investment in, uh, in a broader societal uh, scale, um, to, uh, to f- make it function as a kind of a, a, a little bit of help in the uh, kind of vertical social climbing ladder of the like the utopian idea that you're going to turn every working class poor working class family into a middle class family homeowner they are homeowners they are investing in their property they are valorizing it the, the entire point of this is to increase the 
the commercial value of the properties. But in but this is happening in not in the beginnings of the neoliberal uh, financial speculation boom, but in its death throes when it's collapsing. And so this really shows the like the the Thatcherite thinking model, but in a, in a historical moment forty years later of total desperation, in which it is absolutely obvious that people like the, the the living conditions of people that people are not ascending en masse to the middle no. class the people are not becoming homeowners and having having increased uh, capacity to develop whatever and so what you have is you give the person half a house pretending that they're going to be able to uh, like elevate themselves to the middle class by way of building the other half of the house themselves and which, they, which, which they have to take out a loan to do anyway. So it's just exactly of using public so, money so the to way force people to, to take, take loans. Out loans. So the way that they've so these like obviously some people have clearly done that. some stuff. They've, they've, yeah. So in order to do that, they have to take out a mortgage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. exactly. So, uh, yeah. so, so you see the perversity of this. Yeah. But this appears in 2016 as this pioneering radical project of architecture returning to like caring for the little people and uh, and having social concerns. Well, it's, it's idiotic, isn't it? I mean, you know... It's radical architecture. <laughs> but if you're middle class, you can expect a home to be built for you. If you're working class, you only get half a home and then you've got to take out a loan to pay for the rest of it. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Just no, this build, the full, build the full bloody home and let them take out a loan to buy the whole home then. You know, <laughs> How hard can it be? Oh no! Oh yeah, they won't be able to afford. It's just ridiculous. So they're paying. <laughs> so they're paying rent and mortgage as well. Yeah, it's like what you were describing yeah. earlier. Well, story. okay then. You know, I, I mean, th to sit there and say that social housing has no intrinsic value, which is essentially what he's saying there. Yeah. If it's social housing, it has no intrinsic value. It goes down in value. Well, you've only got. It to has look. no market value. That's what he's talking right, about. Right. Well, then you've a, only got to look at what. Yeah. Investment. You just have a look at what's done, been done in this country to social housing. You can see not only has it got a market value, it has a massive market value. Um, and, uh, you know, and not managing that market correctly and not having the right sort of regulation for the private rented sector has led to the commodification of one of our most important social assets, which was which was council housing. Right. That's what's happened in this country. That's what that is. It's the commodification of housing and, you know, just... A mindset that says, um, oh, a home is an asset. It's not a home is a home. It's where people need to live in order to bring their families up and in order to be able to function as members of society. And also the houses are shit. Well, th there is that as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's also like read, reading that text, This coming after 2008, you expect when they start talking about investment, you're thinking in kind of neo-Keynesian terms. So you think that oh he's saying an investment like in as as like uh, uh, public infrastructure, uh, like the, all, all the ways that investment in the community. But this is all about no, finance it's capital. Money, but exactly. It's exactly, about profit exactly. for finance capital. At the end of the day, where does finance capital make most of its money? It makes it from housing. Yeah. That's where the return is now, and it's yeah. all eighty percent of the, of this economy. More than eighty percent of the economy in this country is invested in social. Is invested in housing through mortgages and through debt. That's where the money is in this country. It's not in manufacturing. It's not in creation. It's yeah. not in development. It's actually in, in, in finance capital, raking the money in via interest payments and, and loans and all the rest of it. And the, and the reason 
<laughs> the reason that um, finance capital has been left alone, the reason you are not seeing house prices plummet in this country at the moment, because by rights, with what's gone on with COVID, by rights, we should be seeing an absolute collapse of, of house prices in this country at the moment. The reason you're not is because finance capital cannot allow it to happen. Yep, yep. It cannot allow it to happen because it is the end of finance capital in yep. this country and probably internationally in general, in general, in general it, it, it will be a, if, a the house, if the housing market collapses. The housing market, which is why developers don't build to meet need, because if they started to build to meet need, prices would come down, either rental prices or, or purchase prices, and then finance capital collapses. Finance capital is invested in keeping rents high and in keeping prices high. So nationalised all financial sector? No, nationalised land, all land. Yeah, but if you do that, then <laughs> the financial sector collapses and you have exactly. to nationalise it anyway. Yeah, well. Guarantee we, we move to we move to a different accounts. financial model. We move to a different economic model, comrade, and then finance capital doesn't have quite the same cachet that it has now. It doesn't exist. Exactly. <laughs> so that okay, go ahead. I just as a final point, I just want to re-emphasize this. This project was from 2003, post 2008. There was a politicization of architecture culture, which made this quote unquote socially minded project, which aesthetically is uh, sort of appalling, rose it to the level of winning the most prestigious prize in architecture. The Nobel Prize, the International Nobel Prize of Architecture. And it did so basically masquerading as a critique of the system that brought us 2008, and yet it is exactly the system of, the 2008. System of 2008. It's just it's in its itself, death throes. Yeah, and, well, and trying to extend itself into ever more like it, a... Yeah. Uh, vulnerable people, basically. Yeah, yeah. The um, same architect, Alejandro Aravena, uh, also in 2016 was uh, named, was invited to be the senior curator of the most important international architectural exhibition in at least the Western world. I don't know what's going on in China. Um, uh, the Venice Biennale of Architecture. Uh, the Venice Biennale of Architecture of 2016 basically rendered mainstream these like new socially engaged uh, architecture through this exhibition that he curated with this type of approach. But this is social engagement, is it? This is oppression at the end of the day. But it, this is specifically how architecture functions today. It's producing these outcomes with a ginormous discursive ideological smokescreen in front of it framing the continuation of the same neoliberal reality as a, the critique of it. Yeah. Well. So I think we should move on. Yeah. I think we should move on to... Uh, yeah, I didn't like that. that. <laughs> uh, you want to go for that one already? Yeah. Oh, it looks like the obelisk in um, 2001, except that's, that, it's not. That's the shard. Black. Yeah. No, I'm thinking if, if it's that... Yeah. If it was black, it would look just like the obelisk in 2001. A yes, space but it's not black. It's made of gold. Right. This is the ingot from uh, from Jack Self. Um, right, so I'm just reading this. It's the product of a complex financial algorithm that manipulates conditions of debt. What the bloody hell does that mean? Yeah, wait, wait, just read it. Just read it out loud for to us. To provide ultra-durable, high-quality and inexpensive housing. Funded by a 50-year bond let, mechanism, let, let me what, like a the, mortgage, you mean? Let me just read the, the physical description. This is from 2012-2014. The ingot is a 
meter gold-plated tower sited next to London Bridge and designed to house low-paid, precarious workers. <laughs> that doesn't sound right, does it? That, something about that doesn't make much sense well, to me. What's a precarious worker? Do you mean people who are working in the gig economy who don't have contracts of employment? Is that who we yeah. mean? That's yeah, probably that's what he means. That's what he means. Gold-plated. But, it, but the building's gold-plated. Right. Is it actually gold plated or is it painted with gold paint? Well, it's not real at all. It's no, just a so made up. It, so it's it's just a made up thing. Bollocks, then, isn't in it? In theory, it's like the gold platedness the, the is point, part of the but strategy. The, but the point of this is to come up the idea, the concept of the project, even though it never left paper, is that it is a super clever uh, financial mechanism that is being invented in order to make it to make it possible within the neoliberal framework to fund. Uh, social housing for the most vulnerable. Uh, of course, the fact that it never left paper is a demonstration that the uh, uh, the super clever financial uh, algorithm doesn't work. But anyway. Well, but aside from anything else, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's economically illiterate, isn't it? It's funded by a fifty-year bond mechanism. Okay, so generally. The funding for um, this sort of building is going to be some sort of a mortgage arrangement, normally over 50, 60 years is generally the, the, the average period, minimum 30 years, generally around 60 years. So what's the big deal? Um, and in terms of a 50-year bond mechanism, oh, how exciting. Um, and a mechanism as well. It suggests that if the influx of global capital into London property cannot be stopped, it might be redirected in such a manner as to flip the supply-demand shortage. I mean, the whole point of the influx of global capital into London is to ensure that you don't flip the supply-demand right. shortage. It is operating on the assumption that there will always be a mismatch between supply and demand and that demand high. will never be met. And there will be, you know, it is a strategic objective of the property development industry. It's not even like an not objective. It's, it's just the same thing. The right raising prices depends on the imbalance between supply and demand so that demand is never met. That's what keeps prices high. And the movement of capital into London is, is, is just that process. The capital moves into London because the prices are rising. That's, that's the capital moving into London. And, <laughs> that's and the, that's, that's uh, investors all over the world buying hedge fund, uh, uh, putting money into hedge funds who own London properties. And, and it's probably worth just reflecting that we are now moving into the end stage of Thatcher's vision for Docklands you know, having privatised the docks and the dock area, we have seen slowly but surely the redevelopment of all of that land into principally housing land, you know, and it's now moving out towards Barking Reach and, and uh, all the rest of it. So that's... <laughs> and the objective for that, you know, effectively almost giving that land away. I mean, they, they privatised all of the docks, all of the docklands that were owned by by um, uh, the state around the whole country have been privatised. London, of course, is the, is the main prize uh, in terms of real estate development, but you're seeing it in other areas, you know, whether it be Bristol, Manchester, Liverpool. They're the areas where you've actually seen the growth of really expensive housing. Go to Grimsby. Look at the docks in Grimsby. Nobody wants to live in fucking Grimsby, so it's derelict. 
that area. Now, it's ripe for redevelopment if you're not going to bring that back into, into industrial use, which you should do. It used to be the site of the, you know, the, the main fishing fleet in, in, uh, in Britain, and, and it's, as I say, now derelict. The whole strategy has been about maximising profit for private developers. That's what it is. You are never, ever going to get a move away from that until you get back to a situation where we have the development of social housing at scale so that you do then start to meet demand. That is the only solution. Yep. The only solution. Exactly. And then nonsense like that won't happen. I mean, these bastards... And, but this, this, com- this, this presents itself as a, like incredibly clever, well-informed... Uh, like An architect who goes beyond just design to actually be, uh, understand the financial mechanism so that they can like actually engage with them and turn them around. But as you say, it's, it's radically economically illiterate. It has no idea what, it's just gibberish. Every sentence is exactly. gibberish. And, and, uh, and this works. In, in the art ar- market. In the, in art, the and architecture markets. world. It's basically just, you're just asked to imagine if things were the opposite of the way they are. What, the in, I'm sorry, I'm just reading that last paragraph. The ingot explores the contemporary crisis of representative democracy, highlights the declining value of the (laughs) nation-state in attempts to use the fiscal tools of neoliberalism in order to weaken this profoundly immoral wealth distribution. That really needs to go to Sood's corner in private eye, I think. (laughs) You you just look it up. Sood's corner, private eye. That that paragraph was written for it. (laughs) Ian Hislop would wet himself over that. But this is is what... (laughs) <laughs> happens in architecture now. This is all architecture. This is what surrounds us in our discipline right. and in our field. This is what happens. Like all, every architect needs to present themselves. Which, to which says like to this. me, which says to me, actually, just how serious the schism is between um, architecture as a discipline and its Reality. output. Well, no, it's what its output needs yeah. to be. Yeah, you know, yeah. and who it needs yeah. to be working with, and who it's work. You know, who. Who do architects serve? You know, at the end of the day, well, no, at the end of the day, okay, who should architects be serving? You know, what is what is the value of architecture as a discipline? It's it's the ability to design really nice places to live and work. That's what architecture should be about. You know, places that people want to live in, places where people want to go, places where people want to work. And if architects aren't doing, if architects are doing this sort of nonsense, that's what then it really, this, this is the way of doing well nice places for people to live, um, and the most yeah. vulnerable of them all, as well. Yeah, this is this is trying supposedly trying to achieve that exclusively through the project, rather than understanding the larger political struggle around architecture and housing sure. that all this shit depends on. And uh, you know, what's it for? What is it for? This no. is for the person. No, no, I'm asking. I'm asking. Uh, no, I'm throwing it back to you. Project. What is architecture for? You're the architects. Tell me what are what is architecture for? The objective response, uh, the objective true answer to that question is well, it depends on the historical conjuncture. Ever since the 1970s, architecture is no, to no, no, improve, no, no, no. I'm, val- I'm, I'm, improve I'm, the value I'm, of financial market. I'm moving beyond. I'm moving beyond the what is to what should be. What is architecture for? What's its, you know, we know what an electrician is for. We know what uh, a gas engineer is yeah. for. We even know what a housing officer is for. What is an architect for? What is, what is your raison d'etre? What is your, what, why do you exist? 
why would you choose architecture as a as a profession these these are questions that i that, that i'm asking when i'm looking at stuff like that yeah and because it's not complicated to understand that no. what most are well-meaning i'm gonna guess uh, architects who are not these who are not these people um would reply is that i want to make people's lives better through Building nice places. Yeah, exactly. contributing through the technical tools of the architect as a designer and as an organizer of program and space and blah, 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 uh, to produce, to improve the material conditions of the living environment where mm. people exist socially. Mm. That's it, right? It should be that. But the political economic conditions of the contemporary era are in direct contradiction with architects being able to do that. So architects turn around and start producing first architecture to improve uh, um, to improve to, to raise prices effectively to yeah. function for the to, to for the financial market to markets. create profit for and people, when the financial market starts becoming increasingly autonomous from the the construction sector after 2008 because the the government just prints money and uh, gives money to the financial sector through bailouts mm. and so the financial market is less dependent on the housing uh, bubble the financial bubble becomes more independent from the housing bubble that had been its fundamental pillar mm. until 2008, uh, becomes more autonomous from it. There is a crisis of the construction sector. There, financial capital doesn't need as much construction as it needed before to keep its prices high. It can just keep them high artificially through inventing money, that the government inventing money and giving it to them. So the um, uh, architects, even the neoliberal architects, no longer have easy access to the construction market. And so they have to find other ways of selling something to make money to someone. Mm -hmm. And increasingly what they sell is, is this, is complete gibberish discourse that they can sell as a kind of a radical project that can be essentially sold no longer as a project to be built, but as a concept art sure. object to be shown in a gallery sure. and uh, presented as as art and to be uh, sold in academia itself within the academic markets. This is a product whose actual function is as a, a part of the cultural industries. It has nothing to do with construction. It has mm. nothing to do with making housing for the poor. This is a con job to be sold as art. Sure. I mean, maybe it's part of the general malaise in academia, which is that it seems to have been kidnapped by metaphysics, really, a lot of it. <laughs> well, like, this is, this is basically students don't know that they can get a normal job, and they think they have to basically make up their client yeah. through their projects at school. So yeah. they're, like, we have to try to talk to our students about this problem and talk them out of doing things like this, yeah. which often like their units are, or they're like are fully committed to fully committed doing to. something like this. But students feel that there's something wrong. And that's why like what we, uh, what we're selling to them, which is the truth <laughs> is actually popular. <laughs> like students are thirsty for someone who talks about well, reality and shows, shows them, do you realize what these actually is? But you're, you, there, there seems to be a complete disconnect based upon the conversations I've had with you and these couple of things that I've looked at. There seems to be a complete disconnect between your discipline and your industry because yes. your industry yeah. is and construction was... and building. That's, that's where you sit as a profession. That's where you belong as a profession is in that industry well, with all of a those A lot of people in our discipline would right now tell you, I would disagree with you and tell you, well, no, architecture is a vast cultural field. Well, then that all is it expanding. is is art. This is what we were discussing. All it is is art. It, that, that is yeah. what it is. It's art. 
If it's not, if it's not part of the construction industry, it's art. It's painting. It's drawing. It's well, or 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 it's deal making and fashion. management and yeah. and fashion sure. and like finance. Sure. This is ex- this is exactly what the the last episode we recorded is about. It's yeah. about architects embracing this division yeah. because of the predicament they're in. Yes. Architecture as a discipline is embracing its radical separation from the profession, but the prob- and, it's fun- and it's creating a a pyramid scheme internal to the cultural industries and academia itself. Academia creates new architects and then tries to pr- pretend lies to them, saying to them that it will then give find them a job as a part of the culture industry. But the that risk... then is in academia making money by getting more students in the future. And nothing, none of this has any concrete reality to architecture as a profession, to the construction industry, or to social media. And sure, and if you remain divorced from or, or uh, extend the divorce from what your jobs should be about, which is designing buildings uh, that are going to be built and are going to be used and have a purpose. If you do that, then what will happen is for the vast majority of the work that you're doing, because all the designs are already there, they're available off the shelf, is what you will end up with is building surveyors doing your work, actually, when it comes to major schemes. Why pay for a fucking architect to come in and design something from scratch when you can pick a design that's been around for 40 or 50 years that does the job perfectly well, pull it off the shelf and, if, and crack on with it and just tweak it for and, whatever and the current regs that, are? And to add to that, a, a growing problem starts emerging and it's already like aggressively obvious from my perspective at least that the... Uh, the, the, the educational, like architectural education is not really interested to any significant extent in providing the technical uh, skills no. and knowledge for actually being an architect, two architects. It's, it's interested in providing a kind of je ne sais quoi, cultural je ne sais quoi. Well, it's idiotic. Uh, I mean, it's, but this is, but this is, this is, this is. Without any actual transferable skills mm. to, even if now it's like the reality of the construction sector is a hellhole, we know that there is a social break. But it isn't a hellhole. It's employing lots and lots of people and people who are working in it earn bloody good wages, even if they're working as subcontractors or whatever. There is still good money. There is still a good career to be had in construction. At the moment, you're working for the man and the majority of people working in building are working for the man and that's where, you know, the social impact is. But as a profession, I would say that this is a long, slow suicide. Why the fuck would you take on people who can't actually deliver anything that's got a practical use but this, why would this you is, this is this is this is what architecture is it's the history of this contradiction since the renaissance this has been the contradiction of architecture what actually is architecture is it technical competence is it the mastery of construction methods and the design of functional solutions to problems is it aesthetics is it art it's, it's all it's, of those. it's clearly all of those but all of those aren't a coherent discipline that's an incredibly unstable, precarious, and contradictory amalgam of skills uh, and abilities, which really, from the Renaissance, just rests on the division between intellectual and manual labor. It's a bit like being a housing officer. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but without, and that's but why without, we the, thought the, com- without the requirement for a three or four year degree, you know. It's the <laughs> but, but the point that you're making that this is a kind of slow suicide is the point that we keep making yeah. in the sense that like I, we, it's better 
like yeah today as you say you're working for the man the like you you can get a job as an architect in the construction sector and you're going to be building gentrification projects and it's not like you're not contributing to society becoming a better place mm. in your in your in your work uh, because that you don't have the chance to do that, even regardless of how well-meaning you are. It, that's just the that's current the case, political economic reality. that's the case reality. for all of us. Exactly. At the end of the day, exactly. for every worker, exactly. we're all in the same exactly. boat. Nothing we're all about working architecture. in capitalism. You know, exactly. So, exactly. exactly. Yeah. But the point is that political change is possible. You can, there, there is a, 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 the real potential for transformative politics and for political economic reorganization. And in fact, if you're a Marxist like, like we are, all three of us here, uh, you know that it is not only possible, it is inevitable. Mm. This, is, this system is not sustainable. Mm. It, is, it, it, it falls itself, it creates the conditions for its own falling apart. Mm. And we're seeing it now. We're seeing it live before our eyes that the neoliberal system is in deep crisis. Mm. And that opens up the potential for real change. Imagining a situation where that real change actually happens through political militancy, not through architects inventing radical projects. This is the fundamental paradox that is really funny, is that all of the radical architects who have all of this political lingo will be completely useless because they have absolutely no skills that can be used in actually solving any problems in society through, through architecture. <laughs> uh, they will have absolutely no capacity. They, they are neoliberal propagandists, even when they don't know that's what they are. They have nothing to offer. They're completely useless. And the architects who don't engage in these radical projects and who are just like technically competent workers working for neoliberalism today will be technically competent workers working for socialism tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> Those exactly. are transferable skills. Exactly. They, can, they, they can be building gentrification projects now and with the same skills, they can start working. Maybe they need to adjust the skills because skills are not also like tech, technique is not itself completely neutral. Sure. But... It, it is there. There is a lot of transferable knowledge and uh, the capacity to adapt to a change in the, the the demand that a new societal shift will will place on them to produce something that is socially useful and that fulfills actual social needs. So, the radical project of these like politically engaged architects that present themselves today as the architectural left is actually more dangerous and further to the right than just depoliticized architects trying to make a living with a normal job that they can get. All right, Lorraine, um, thank you so much for this. Uh, it was excellent. Yeah. Uh, we, I, I, I especially liked it when we got really angry here at the end. <laughs> you get our suffering. Uh, we were surrounded by this every day. I mean, I'm not anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, I hope the listeners will have enjoyed this, uh, uh, different thing. Maybe we'll do this more often, uh, interview people, talk about architecture from the perspective of like show it to non-architects who live in the real world instead of in the cultural industries markets. Um, yeah, thank you so much. It was it was really tremendous. Uh, I mean, this is our first interview episode. Normally on podcasts, when they interview people, they offer their guests the opportunity to make a last point or to plug <laughs> plug things. Like, feel free to share your Instagram. Or, uh, <laughs> you know. Well, I, I, uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, 
not that big of a fan of social media. I do some fairly basic stuff. I think... Um, Joined what, a communist party. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's been... A, actually, it's, it has been a pleasure, comrades. Uh, and it's really nice, actually, just to have the opportunity to kind of talk through these issues in a little bit more depth than sometimes we have the opportunity to do. Um, if people are interested, you can uh, see uh, the Communist Party's housing charter, which is called Homes for the People, and it's on our website. Yeah, communistparty.org.uk. Take a look at our um, charter and keep an eye out for our forthcoming uh, pamphlet once we've um, finished writing it on housing, the history of uh, social housing in England. Indeed. And I hope that people will find that interesting. I think the, f the final point that I'd make really um, is that, you know, moving forward, um, any professionals that are involved in uh, the development of localities uh, and uh, in the design and development and the planning of localities, you need to take account of who you're actually building for. You need to talk to us about who you're building for and what you're designing. We know what we need. You know, we know what we need in terms of accommodation and what we don't need is little boxes. And... Um just as importantly, patreon.com slash patreon.com slash street superpod. We are, if for all intents and purposes, as you see now, producing uh, a one hour to an hour and a half episode every couple of weeks. Uh, I mean, we, the idea is once a month, but they are chunky episodes that we split them into when we are uh, making them come out uh, a week apart each half um we intend to continue insisting on on this and producing more and more interesting stuff for uh, you to become a revolutionary architect uh, properly informed by us <laughs> <laughs>